This podcast is sponsored by the Texas Wine Marketing Assistance Program, a program at the Texas Department of Agriculture assisting the Texas wine industry in promoting and marketing Texas wines and educating the public about the Texas wine industry. Commissioner Sid Miller and his team at the TDA are working to open new doors and new markets for the thriving Texas wine industry. For more information, go to uncorktexaswines.com. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 36. Happy New Year. I'm excited to be kicking off a new year with a great interview with Jason Sintani, winemaker at Yano Estacado Winery in Lubbock. And we'll also catch up on the Texas wine industry news that came out at the end of 2021 and the first couple weeks of 2022. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Carville Hills Winery keeps popping up in the news. This time, it's in Wine Enthusiast article, Five Incubators Creating the Next Generation of Winemakers. Carville Hills is, of course, the winery incubator that John Rivenberg runs, and it's featured along with winery incubators in the Napa Valley, Kansas, Walla Walla, Washington, and Georgia, the country, not the state. And it was an article in the Midland Reporter Telegram that alerted me to one of Kerrville Hill's newest clients. Los Nepales Vineyards is located roughly halfway between San Angelo and Midland in Sterling City, Texas, population 1,000. Kaylin Hodges is the owner, grape grower, winemaker, and she's opening a new tasting room in Sterling City very soon. Her first vintage sold out, and there's more wine on the way. She's got a two-acre vineyard of Tempranillo and Cabernet Sauvignon, and she also sources grapes from other places in West Texas. A couple of other openings caught my eye. Casaro Winery is going to be opening a tasting room in downtown Corsicana, and Homestead Winery has a new location in Plano. Texas Monthly writer Jessica Dupuis shared 10 Texas wines to toast the holidays, and her list included the Bending Branch Tanat, C.L. Buteau Carbonic Cunois, Dukeman Roussan, High Meadow Petit Verdot, Carville Hills Simeon, Yano Estacado Syrah from Del Valley Vineyard, which you'll be hearing more about in just a moment from Jason Santani, Lostraw Cunois Rosé, McPherson Carignan, Ron Yates Tempranillo from Newsom Vineyard, and the Spicewood Sparkling Simeon. Check out the full article for details about each one of these wines. At the end of 2021, I wrote a story for the State Fair of Texas, and it's called Five Texas Wines to Give as Holiday Gifts. My selections included the Lost Straw Cellars, Gimut Lishkite, which I never would have included in the list had I realized I would have to say that out loud on a recording, Abastra Stello, Dove Ridge Wineries Sangiovese, Eden Hill, Alianico, and Reddy Vineyards, Cabernet Sauvignon. Reggie Solomon is one of the few bloggers whose articles about Texas wine has made it onto this podcast. Reggie holds a diploma in wine and spirits from the UK-based Wine and Spirits Education Trust and has traveled to wine regions and tasted wine extensively. So when his blog, Wine Casual, featured a selection of Texas wine, it got my attention. Last month, Reggie posted an article called, I'm Impressed with Texas Wine and Why You Might Be Too. 
He said that he was first introduced to Texas wine during a seminar at the Society of Wine Educators Conference, and that was taught by Houston-based master sommelier Guy Stout. And then in October, during Texas Wine Month, he got the opportunity to sample and learn more about Texas wine. His post on his blog is very educational, outlining the major growing areas of Texas with more information about our climate and grape varieties. He says that the reason you may be impressed with Texas wine has to do directly with the state's developing wine identity, which offers a wide range of wines in different styles. Given the range of wines available, he says it's easy to find a wine that suits your taste, particularly in the premium wine category above $20, and there you'll find wines with richness and concentration. He says he's particularly impressed with the Rhone varieties, Tempranillo, and Tanat. There are six wineries that Reggie highlights in the article, Adelphos Cellars, Grape Creek Vineyards, Fall Creek Vineyards, Ron Yates Wines, McPherson Cellars, and Bending Branch Winery. He's rated several wines from these wineries, and you can visit his blog to get the scores and more details. Find the links to all of these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. Jason Santani from Yano Estacado Winery is my guest, and he's had over 15 years of experience making wine in Lubbock. I can't believe that Jason is my first guest who resides in the Texas High Plains. Here's Jason. Tell me, where does your wine journey begin? Um, truly begins, I would say, in college was when I um, really kind of felt the, uh, you know, the wine bug, you know, being swallowed. <laughs> That's how it happens. <laughs> um, and it was, yeah, my senior year. In at University of Houston, and I was studying biochemistry. And I, uh, a few friends of mine asked if I wanted to, you know, just take this elective class um, called wine appreciation at, um, you know, through the the uh, College of Hotel and Restaurant Management there at, in Houston. And I thought, why not? I like, you know, I had tasted, I had worked at Papa Do's um, as you know, as a bartender and server, you know, during my college years, and I knew a little bit about wine. I liked it, um, but I didn't really, you know, study it or anything like that. And I figured, why not? I, I didn't really need to take the elective, but I figured, okay, it's my last year. Let's have some fun, get to drink some wine at, in the lab, and um, you know, hang out with my my buddies. Didn't think it would be too hard of a class, and. It turns out, I mean, it was kind of difficult, but we, I really enjoyed it. It stirred something in me that um, I didn't know it was there. I really enjoyed learning about, you know, just everything. Uh, all the, I would say, entry-level aspects of wine uh, regions, uh, varietals, etc. Um, and plus the professor did a, he just did a fantastic job. It was always upbeat and it was just a fun class to go to. Um, and then, of course, the wine during the tastings, um, you know, applying what you've learned in, in the lecture you know, in the tastings and, and just being able to taste the region you just learned about. That was fun. And then at the end of the semester, um, we were able to taste some older wines. Um, and I was able to taste a wine from my birth year, which is 1982. And it was a first growth, first growth Bordeaux, which I mean, those are always amazing. Um, but that really just, uh, hit me hard. Like, wow, this is, it was beautiful. It was a 1982 Chateau Margaux. It was, uh, you know, stored correctly. 
it did everything. It delivered exactly how one expects that wine to deliver. And that's what really kind of solidified, you know, or, or changed the trajectory in my life. Um, and, and I started doing, you know, some digging as to, you know, find out if my degree was applicable to the, get into the wine industry. And I just started taking whatever steps I needed to take to get, um, you know, a job in the wine industry. And there's some really lucky networking and, um, and people work, you know, reaching out to other people on my behalf. I was able to get a job or get an interview at Yano Estacado in the summer of 2005, uh, right after I had graduated. And I've been here ever since. So and were you also <laughs> able to use your biochemistry degree to do some things in the lab? Yeah, absolutely. That's more or less what got my, um, kind of got me the interview and, and probably got me the job um, initially because I was, I was able to work in the lab and in the cellars. Um, and I think I just worked my tail off to try to impress my new bosses. Um, and I guess I did something right because I'm still here. I've kind of worked through the ranks up to winemaker. It turns out a lot of the basic chemistry in a wine lab is, um, is not very difficult. You don't need a biochemistry degree to do it. Um, and you don't even need a science degree. You can just be trained on it, but to interpret, uh, the analysis. And I think to really understand phenolic chemistry, some of the advanced chemistry, uh, especially with red wine making, um, having that, uh, advanced, uh, organic chemistry, um, and, uh, analytical, uh, background absolutely applies and is helpful. I've never been that interested in science, to be frank, until I got interested in wine. So I think <laughs> it's an interesting uh, lens to go back and, and relearn chemistry with the with uh, winemaking in mind. So oh, yeah. tell me a little bit about uh, Yano Estacado. I'm sure everybody's heard of Yano, but I'd like to hear from you. What should people know? I understand it's the second largest and second oldest winery in Texas. Yeah, there's a lot of history behind it. That is true. Yano Estacado. Um, is in Lubbock, by the way. It's not in Llano, Texas. <laughs> Although we are going to partner up, uh, at least last time I heard, uh, with with the town of Llano. I think they do a, a food and wine festival there. And it's like, you know, they've had it for a while and we've never talked to them about this until last year. <laughs> so you may see Lub you may see Llano in Llano next year. That won't be confusing. Yeah, not at all. Okay, so the history, yes, we are the second oldest uh, winery uh, in the state of Texas, the first one to um, open our doors or, or be a bonded winery uh, after Prohibition. So uh, w whenever Prohibition was repealed back in the what, late early 30s. 33, I think. Yeah. So until then, until from then until 1976, which is when we were um, we received our our bonded winery uh, federal approval and state approval, and actually had you know wine produced that year. Um, there was no wineries opened. I think Valverde Winery was the only one. And uh, yeah, so late, mid to late 70s uh, was about the same time that other wineries had, um, you know, had, had gotten received their bond and opened their doors and started making wine. Um, the winery has originally um, focused on American hybrid varieties like Baco Noir. That was the original vines that... Um, uh, Doc McPherson, which is uh, one of the original founders, along with a professor named uh, Robert Reed. They were both Texas Tech professors. Uh, Doc McPherson was a chemistry professor. Uh, Robert Reed was a 
a horticulture professor. Um, I don't know if they did a lot of research or not, um, but they're definitely uh, wine enthusiasts, uh, you know, plant growing, you know, enthusiasts. Um, and so they, um, they already had uh, dabbled in the wine and the grape growing and wine production, um, I guess, hobby <laughs> at that time. <laughs> Uh, well ahead of time, and they had you know they you can hear stories from Kim McPherson, who's who's Doc McPherson's son, um, talk about you know them growing grapes in their backyard and and having uh, Bob Rob Reed Robert Reed had a nursery small nursery that they you know played around with and he'd seen growing up, and um, they had always dabbled making small batches of wine, uh, but nothing really commercially until um, they had. Um, you know, had some success in the seven, early 70s uh, with something drinkable, they would say. <laughs> and also uh, the ability to keep vines alive, especially with the cold winters we have here. So they were feeling pretty good, pretty bullish about moving forward with trying to get some investors um, and actually making this a commercial thing. Um, and that's exactly what they did. They basically got investor support. Um, these original investors are, they're still shareholders they're still a lot of them are still board of director um uh leaders in the company and um it's a pretty amazing story um people you know just who had who didn't really share the same passion or didn't really understand wine that much or grape growing or anything they just blindly got involved and there was a few key i can't give you all the full details because i don't remember them exactly i just heard of them recently but there was a few key points early on in this winery's history that if there was a, a board member or an investor that didn't, um, who hadn't contributed the way they did, um, like the company wouldn't have existed. And it's, it's pretty amazing to hear that. And it's like one key vote or one, you know, uh, key instance where, um, you know, the, a check, someone was who didn't seem like they were going to be involved. And all of a sudden they come back and, and gave, you know, $50,000 to, to get the project going. Um, if those things didn't happen, Yano would not be, the whole the whole history would be changed, of course, but um, I didn't realize that there was these there's key points in the history that it was either make or break uh, for this company. Interesting. But yeah, so um, uh, a lot of gratitude towards those early um, you know leap of faith investors that that really got this winery uh, up and going, and all the hard work that went into growing the grapes and making the wine over the years. Um, the winemaking has has changed hands, uh, I think six times. So I'm like the sixth winemaker, I believe my count is right. Um, but the early years were, were definitely a struggle. Um, you know, where Lubbock is, you know, the West end of the Bible belt. And, um, there's stories about, um, how there were drive-by shootings at the winery because of <laughs> I'm not sure which religious organization <laughs> or <laughs> denomination, was upset, maybe Church of Christ, Baptist. <laughs> I'm not sure, Uh-oh. but I don't. Right, I think I don't think that's true. Yeah, I don't think that's really true. But um, there was a lot of op- opposition to um, making wine in West Texas. But that has since passed. They realized it wasn't, um, you know, what they thought it was going to be. Um, and of, of course, to the 80s and 90s, there's just been a you know more and more growth, especially with the vines being planted in this area. Um, there's been um, organizations created to help support um, fledgling glow- growers uh, who are transitioning from other crops, usually cotton, 
um, so that they can gain some understanding because it's completely different, um, of course, crop plant to grow. Um, uh, through, I would say, the 80s into the early 90s, the, um, the growth, the focus transitioned from American hybrids to uh, Vitis vinifera, which is the European grape that everyone knows and loves. And the main focus uh, or the main cultivars were um, Chardonnay, Cabernet, Merlot, basically what was popular um, as wine uh, during the 80s um, was was planted in a big way out here and, and made into wine at, at Llano. And there was a lot of um, a lot of really good wine that was made, uh, award winning wine with those varieties, believe it or not. <laughs> and um, I think the climate may have been a little cooler back then. Um, we've definitely seen some difference, or some changes in the last ten years. Um, but if you hear once again, if you hear these, if you look at um, weather data and you hear some of these anecdotal stories uh, from, you know, even Kim McPherson and 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 some of the people that lived here during that time. Um, it really was, um, the nights were cooler. Uh, it was a little more suitable to those varieties than I think it is becoming now. And so, uh, yeah, Yano had a breakthrough vintage in 1984. They made a Chardonnay that won a double gold at a prestigious, I think at the San Francisco international wine competition. So we kind of had our own little, um, uh, judgment of Paris type deal. Where <laughs> yeah, that's huge. I included that well, one of my early podcasts was about the 12 bottles that moved the needle on Texas wine. And that, that was one of them because I think it was oh, okay. the first Texas wine that got a recognition of that nature. So it was huge. Yeah, it was pretty big. And I think that just, it, it, I think it probably did help out with um, bringing in more investment um, because around that same time, the winery grew um, in size. Um, it, it, it Demand was up, uh, production needed to be we kind of maxed out on production space. So they, they had built, um, our, uh, I guess our second seller, which is like our main winemaking seller right now. And, um, that's what this whole built, this whole winery has basically been an add on. It started out as like concrete, you know, masonry block building, <laughs> pretty basic <laughs> could withstand gun gunshots by the there way. Um, and since then, it's just been built on and renovated, and um, there hasn't been a completely brand new building built. Um, it's just been an add-on, and so we're kind of a labyrinth. It's pretty funny um, coming out here. It's like, where does this door lead? <laughs> it's not quite the Winchester Mystery House, but it's very labyrinthy. Um, all the doors lead to somewhere. <laughs> From the beginning, have you been just partnering with growers or owning some of your own vineyards, or what? What is the current situation on uh, vineyards? Yeah, so I know I'm kind of long-winded on the history, but um, it, it kind of, those are intertwined. So uh, Yano in the 80s was growing a lot of their own grapes. We were purchasing from other growers um, who had, usually these were the first generation growers. Um, some of them are not around anymore and, you know, their vineyards are gone, have been pulled up. Um, but yeah, we were mainly growing our own grapes in the 80s. Um, Purchasing a little bit is my understanding. In the 90s, it started transitioning more towards, um, you know, our vineyards were being sold off um, and we were starting to purchase more from commercial growers in the area. And in the 2000s till now, it's just completely, um, you know, we, we have three acres of vineyards, uh, vineyard adjacent to the winery, and that's it. Everything else we purchased from uh, all of our t uh, Texas programs 
um, are um, 100% Texas, by the way. Um, but they are purchased from uh, growers all from West Texas. So uh, area surrounding Lubbock. And then uh, we purchased from a grower in far West Texas, um, about 90 miles east of El Paso. Um, so, yeah, we are basically out of the grape growing business and um, just purchasing from growers and, and making um, the wine here okay. from those grapes. Can you say more about, is it Dell City that you're purchasing from out there by El Paso? Yeah, since uh, the late 90s, we've had a, um, a long-term agreement, uh, a contract agreement, a purchase agreement in place. Uh, it actually just, um, this last year was the end of that. Um, we actually are kind of uh, working on um, re-upping that or, or what we're going to, if we're going to focus more on, on purchasing from the High Plains, but... Um, yeah, for almost 30 years, we were purchasing majority of our um, uh, West Texas fruit from Dell Valley Vineyard um, in, in Dell City, Texas. And it's a little tiny agrarian town. Um, you know, if you, you wouldn't, it, you kind of have to go off the, off the you know, beaten path to get there um, because it's, it's on a road that leads from Carlsbad to El Paso, but it's actually about the town itself is 10 miles north of that road. So if you're not meaning to go there, you probably won't get lost and end up there unless you just took a bad right turn right. after the salt flats. Okay. <laughs> but it's a, it truly is a, it's an interesting place. It's, they call it the uh, Valley of Hidden Waters because it's Chihuahuan Desert. It's high, high desert, high elevation desert, uh, little rainfall. I mean, like four inches a year. Um, but without, and without water, nothing would really grow, but they, you know, you, you don't have to dig down very deep to find some water. And that place just cranks out a lot of alfalfa cranks out. Um, they're diversifying a lot of their crops and grapes were one of them, wine grapes. And, um, yeah, the grapes, they, they thrive out there. Um, given the, the right nutritional programs and, and irrigation. Is there um, other agriculture out there? Like, oh yeah. There cotton, There's cotton out there. A little bit of cotton, but there's a lot of alfalfa and premium alfalfa too. Um, and so that's their main uh, uh, cash crop. Um, they did, I think he trialed, um, the, the farmers out there, they trialed um, growing uh, corn. Uh, and, and in fact, which it apparently had some pretty good success this year. Um, he even talked about, I think, growing rice, like doing rice patties because they have so much water. It's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah, it, it really is a, um, you know, there's a, it's, uh, you wouldn't expect it. I mean, like I said, it's the middle of the desert, but if you have the ability to dig down and, and, you know, drill a well, a water well, then it's just like, it just flows. <laughs> so water in the desert. I want to get into talking about the, the kind of wines you make. And I want to start by reading something that was written about you. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but um, Jessica Dufuy, who is a Texas wine writer and cookbook author, put something on social media. It's been a couple of years ago, but I, I saw this uh, written about you, and I thought that I wanted to get your response on, on what she said. She said, perhaps one of the most under-the-radar winemakers in the state of Texas, Jason Santani, is the winemaker for Yano Estacano Winery, the second largest and second oldest winery in Texas. Though much of his work is seen in the area of value-priced wines on the retail shelves throughout the state, his handiwork is revealed through the unique club and on-premise wines he makes. 
Nebbiolo, reminiscent of the hills of Piedmont, Reserve Sangiovese that is rich, playful, and approachable as you'd find in Vino Nobile, and nuanced Tempranillo, evocative of the Ribera del Duero. Santani is among the next generation of Texas winemakers who can usher the state into its next chapter. High praise from Jessica. When she posted that, Katie Jane Seaton of Farmhouse Vineyard said, Hands down, you said it. Underrated, undervalued. The wines he's making in the back that are wine club only that never made it to the shelves, so no one associates them with the brand, blow the doors off of most of the wines in this state. He can blind taste like a freaking master psalm, as humble as a monk, and looks like a Vineyard Vines model. Thank God someone has finally given this talented being the press he was due. So you've got some very nice words. So I would love to know, can you blind taste like a master psalm and then talk about these wines that never make it onto the retail shelf? Uh, I don't I, I don't think I can blind taste like a master psalm, but <laughs> I have to give a lot of credit to uh, Dr. Jerry Goolsby. Um, and he is a local wine enthusiast. He's a retired professor who's from Lubbock, spent his entire academic career elsewhere, came back to Lubbock. Uh, during his retirement, and um, he has a uh, very impressive wine cellar um, full of uh, a lot of Burgundies, a lot of wines that are just not available in Lubbock <laughs> um, and at a price that I cannot afford. And I'm grateful for um, him including me into his wine tastings. And really, he trained me on um, on how to taste, uh, to do blind tastings and how to just appreciate these wines. And I'm forever grateful uh, towards that um, inclusion into those tastings. Um, and she and, and Katie Jane was uh, she did uh, she was invited to a lot of those tastings and um, took part in those. And and I just put all my focus and energy into appreciating the wines that were being tasted. And um, I guess I've my palate was decent enough to. I don't know, pull some parlor tricks and identify some wines. <laughs> Made an impression, apparently. <laughs> Made an impression enough, but um, I mean, those are, yeah, those are amazing wines. And they did, they were super uh, helpful towards my own winemaking here and really understanding kind of where we're at. And I don't want to say pecking order of the wine world, but um, if those are, a lot of these wines can be considered benchmarks. Um, and we just didn't always focus on Burgundy. There were a lot of other uh, wines that were tasted, including um, some Spanish wines, Italian wines, the stuff, uh, varietals that we're producing here in Texas. And so I could establish my own benchmarks and kind of see where we're at um, and felt pretty good about where we're at, especially in this with a lot of the Spanish wines and, um, and the Italian wines. And uh, as far as being, you know, under the radar, I don't know. I guess the radar doesn't really extend up to Lubbock. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> I, I can't but, believe you're actually the first person that lives in Lubbock that I've had on the podcast. I mean, we talk about the High Plains every single podcast, obviously, with 80% or so of the grapes in Texas coming from up there. But as you know, a lot of wineries have set up shop in other places in the state. So I'm, I'm glad to have you representing the entire region. Yeah, well, I thank you. Um, it's I've been here 16 years, and you know I grew up in Houston, and so I've almost been here um, almost half my life. A few more years to go, another 10 years, and I'll be here half my life. And um, I love it out here. It's it's totally different from the rest of the state, uh, climate including. Um, 
but it's a very it's a very hospitable place. People are very warm and friendly, um, and they welcome you. And it's just wide open spaces. It's um, it's. I mean, I think either you like it or you don't. And uh, thankfully, um, I enjoy it out here. And um, it's a great place to raise a family. Good place to grow some wine grapes, too. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Let me ask you about the wines that you're making. I know you've got a lot of different wines. You make a lot of wine. And um, as as Jessica said in the quote, I mean, some are what you're going to find. You may consider the value end of the spectrum. And then others that are wine club only are some really special smaller production things. So just give me the range of what you're making. Yeah. I mean, you basically covered it right there, but I still, my philosophy across the entire, all of our portfolios um, is to over deliver on value. And um, even our, you know, quote unquote high end wines, they're really not that expensive um, for what, um, what we're uh, trying to achieve in those wines uh, for our, um, for everyone who, who uncorks a bottle of Yano wine and tastes them. Um, and so, uh, every, we make a lot of different wines. It's, it's, um, <laughs> it's overwhelming sometimes to be honest. Uh, a lot of the programs, you know, we, we started back in the eighties are still around. Um, and there's, there's, uh, they still sell. There's, there's a, a, a customer in Texas that, you know, um, actually gives us a piece of their mind whenever we change. If there's a slight change, maybe even uh, the, the color hue of a certain uh, pink wine that we make, if it's off a little bit, we, we get some, um, our customers let us know about that. <laughs> so, um, so attention to detail has got to be, um, you know, it's paramount around here and make sure we're not, uh, once we've established a, a wine that people are liking, don't mess it up. So um, we... Yeah, we're um, we are making you know five ninety nine um, sweet wines um, that are are in a big way a, a lot of what we do and a lot of what we bottle. Um, they're still a very important um, style of wine um, uh, for our customers in, in Texas, uh, which is the vast majority of where we sell. Um, almost on, almost you know something like ninety eight percent of all of our wine is sold in Texas, um, and then uh, a mid mid to upper 90s percent is sold through wholesale distribution so we're basically selling in grocery stores and and wine shops for and that's how most people know yano estacado know our brand and um and then the high percentage of what we're selling through that uh mode of sales is is our sweet wines so um yeah, most people know yano estacado as a solid sweet wine producer that you can buy in the grocery store um, and I guess what Jessica and Katie Jane were alluding to is that, yeah, we do have um, some direct-to-consumer um, wines that are sold through the tasting room and through our wine club that no one even knows. It's like our big secret. No one knows about at all. <laughs> and I think you got to try a few of those at the um, that event last summer. And I think... And I uh, had a lot at Texom. I mean, you guys always okay. um, show a lot of those wines at the Texom Wine Awards. And so as a volunteer there, we often get to taste some wines and um yeah i've i've really enjoyed tasting some of those yeah absolutely and then the intent on that is to people who've um i guess there's an evolution that can take place um in in your wine drinking uh during your life as a as a wine consumer uh, you know um and it can evolve from um 
from like say sweet sweeter fruit forward wines to dry and more complex it doesn't always happen that way but um, sometimes it does and, and basically these wines that we're making um, for our tasting room sales or our, um, through our wine club are terroir driven wines or wines that are truly meant to be reflective of the place they're grown um, we focus more on um, you know the the grape itself it's terroir and and try to frame it appropriately with oak if we're using that um, we're really just trying to give the maximum maximum expression of that uh, that place and that grape. Um, and I think that's what people who are looking for that style. Um, and when they find it, I, we really try to over deliver, uh, giving that, you know, and that, and the value that we provide, um, and, um, and try to turn some heads as well. And I think that's what maybe they were referring to. Cause those are, those are wines that, you know, we don't make, they're artisanal wines. I mean, we're making something like, you know, tens of thousands of, of cases of, of say our sweet red, that's our top seller. And then, um, say the one way vineyard Roussan, you know, that you got to taste last year at that driftwood event. I mean, we made 57 cases of that. So, (laughs) so yeah, we, it's, it goes from, I would say a commercial wine, uh, making, uh, for a lot of our wholesale distributed wines and, um, and then artisanal winemaking for our, um, you know, our terroir-influenced, terroir-driven uh, wine club and, and tasting room-only wines. So a lot of people say, you know, Texas wine has changed so much in the past 10 or 15 years. And that if you tasted Texas wine 10 years ago and didn't like it, that you should revisit it because it's totally different now. How have things changed for you and the seller in the last 15 years since you've been at Yano? What are you doing differently? Well, I'd back it up even further and I would say the grapes. Um, there's more understanding in the vineyards and what it takes to grow <clears throat> quality wine grapes. And that's where um, I think the improvements have come from, just better, higher quality grapes. Um, and that always leads to higher quality wine. So I have to give a lot, all, almost all the credit to the, uh, to the wine growers of Texas. They have a pretty hard job. And, um, they are, uh, I like to, we like to align ourselves with growers who have the same philosophy as us. And, um, I would say of the last 10 years, that's making that, um, transition to these types of, to these growers. Um, that's where our, our, a lot of our improvements have come from. A lot of our wine improvements have come from, um, from the, just the quality of grapes that we're getting from, um, the growers who are you know, bent on trying to improve what they do and, and provide, you know, just the highest quality grapes possible. Um, what we do in the cellars here is we embrace technology um, quite a bit. And we also understand the importance of wine making tradition. And so it's kind of a, it's a blend of, of what I call postmodern winemaking and traditional winemaking. And, um, and I, it's hard to go into a lot of detail because it gets pretty wine geeky and sometimes a little sciencey, but essentially that we, we, we utilize, um, new technology and as well as traditional winemaking to make the best possible wine we can. I, I may or may not include this next question because this is geeky, but I just have to ask, cause I haven't had um, too many winemakers on yet that have made sweet wine. 
And mm-hmm. my textbook understanding of making sweet wine is that at some point during the winemaking process, during fermentation, that you stop fermentation with a certain amount of residual sugar left in the must or left in the, I guess it's wine at that point. Um, and you do that by temperature control. Is that right? Yeah, there's a couple different ways to um, arrest your fermentation so that you can have residual sugar or sweetness in the wine. Um, there's also, in Texas, you're actually allowed to make a dry wine and add sugar back to it. So you legally can't do that in California, Oregon, and Washington, maybe New York State. I'm not 100%, but uh, I know for sure that you... Um, uh, can't in California and Oregon and Washington. Um, we do, we, we kind of utilize, um, well, we utilize all the, you know, legal ways to, to make sweet wine, but the majority of what we do is, um, yeah, we will rest fermentations, um, for our rested fermentation, fermentation wines. Um, we'll do that through temperature control. Um, usually try to use temperature control and, um, other settling aids, um, a little bit of sulfur dioxide. Um, but temperature is the most important. Um, once you are able to, uh, and also selective yeast, um, that aren't, um, that don't get stressed out. I know that sounds kind of funny, but really stress leads to off aromas. Okay. Uh, so stinky aromas in the wine. And so you use a special yeast that, you know, if you chill it, if you, you know, once you reach your desired sugar level and you, and you, uh, cool the, tank temperature down to, you know, around freezing 30, 32 degrees. Um, the fermentation yeast are kind of like, they like a happy zone of doing work, just like people. It's too cold or too hot. No one wants to do anything. So the yeast do the same thing. They go dormant, some would die. Um, but that's one way that you can arrest the fermentation and that can happen pretty quickly. Um, so you could set it the day before, chill it down the next day. There's little to no activity in the tank. And then, and there's a lot of settling that occurs, gravitational settling, um, just solids, um, just start sinking to the bottom and then you can decant, you can take, uh, basically the sweet, the clean cleaning or relatively clean, cleaner than it was yesterday, (laughs) settled, uh, wine, um, off of the solids that have, that have fallen to the bottom of the tank, Mm -hmm. including a lot of the yeast. Um, there, there, there's some that are floating around in solution, but a lot of them are kind of trapped in a, uh, a layer of solids on the bottom of the tank. So you, you basically can remove a lot of the yeast, um, in contact with the wine at that point. And then you can apply some more settling aids and, or, um, SO2 sulfur dioxide at that point. Um, and, and basically arrest your fermentation at your sweetness level. And then of course, the other way is, is ferment your wine dry. So no more sugar left and, uh, allow some settling to occur. And then, um, basically keep that wine, um, you know, using good winemaking practices, um, as fresh as possible. And then when you're ready to, um, get it prepared for bottling, you can just add uh, sugar back granular or liquid sugar, uh, back to the tank and, and sweeten it however you want. So you do that right at bottling. Yeah. Typically before, uh, it's better to keep a dry, like a, a wine that ha- doesn't have any sugar in it. Uh, you know, it's more stable that way. Hmm. Um, in the sense that you don't, there's always yeast. There's yeast in the winery everywhere. Sure. <laughs> so sanitation practices, good sanitation practices are always important, um, especially the, if you have sweet wine hanging around. The most important skill of uh, a beginning winemaker is knowing how to clean out barrels and tanks. <laughs> Isn't that how everyone starts? Yeah, 
Absolutely. It's half, it's, it really is half the job and instilling that and everybody who comes through these doors to, who wants to work in winemaking, um, is yeah, you got to clean up after yourself you got to do it quickly and appropriately. <laughs> yeah. I know you've had the opportunity to travel and do some uh, harvests in different places in the world and, um, in California and New Zealand. If you were able to go somewhere else to do another harvest, where would you want to go? And what would you want to learn there? Um, I would probably go to the Okanagan Valley in, in uh, British Columbia, Canada, uh, mainly because I've seen some of the pictures and it looks like New Zealand and it's not as far away. Sure. <laughs> so I guess that really says I would go back to New Zealand and, and <laughs> if I, you know, if it wasn't like, you know, 17 hours away and, you know, so far away from everybody I know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that place had a huge impact on me, but yeah, I would say, um, yeah, the Okanagan. I would go check out, see what they're doing there. I know they're doing a lot, but just see, be able to taste and really uh, see what's um, what their future is. Um, it looks like a very up and coming place. So yeah, I'd go with that, Okanagan Valley. I know that you do a lot of mentoring, and a lot of winemakers that that come to Texas start out in some way working for Yano. Um, are, are you seeing more and more people coming from different places in the world and, and, uh, what's your best advice as a mentor? Oh man. Um, to answer your first question, yes, we're seeing on the, at least, especially on the viticultural side, grape growing side, we're seeing, um, more people from the California wine industry in Washington state, uh, coming out to West Texas to, uh, work directly with growers or as a consulting um, consulting type jobs, um, to improve our grape quality. We're seeing more of that. And then on the, on the winemaking side, um, we, we tend to work with a lot of the food science, food science majors from Texas tech, a few surprisingly, um, a lot of the enology students and viticulture students, they end up leaving Lubbock and going back to where they're from and, um, may or may not join the industry, the wine, Texas wine industry or elsewhere. And really what we've tried to instill is, uh, is the attention to detail and, and just standard good practices. I mean, it's, it's basically like carrying on what they've learned in school in a practical way. And a lot of it, what we touched on earlier is clean up is, is super important and do it immediately. Don't always, you know, don't push off till tomorrow because especially here at Yano, there's so much going on at any given time because we have so many wine programs and a lot of schedules to keep, um, I mean, we're bottling almost every single week. And so there's, you know, you're shuffling a lot of different jobs at a lot of different times of the wine's life. Um, and so you, um, you know, any given seller worker or, um, or anyone in the lab could be working on a different project to meet a certain deadline. Um, and so the, you know, focus on, you know, getting the job done. And that, you know, uh, for whatever work you're doing from A to A to Z, and that includes the cleanup before moving on to the next task. Cause it's easy to get overwhelmed. Um, cause there's, uh, you know, there's just so much, it can be so much to do, um, any given day in a winery. And so, um, yeah, just focus on what you're doing, right. Get, you know, then and there, you know, complete it, um, you know, complete it till it's Sounds done like a <laughs> around harvest yeah. time and other certain other times of the year, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, and as far as winemaking goes, 
I mean, there's, there's a lot of advice given on any given wine. Let me try to think of something specific. Okay. So for instance, white wines, uh, aromatic, uh, fruit forward, white wines, Sauvignon Blanc, for instance, very specific protocol in winemaking. If you want to, you know, uh, just, uh, be able to bottle something similar to what, um, the French and the Loire Valley and Sancerre, especially and what the, um, the Kiwis are doing in New Zealand in Marlboro. If you want to capture the fullest potential of that variety, there are key moments in that wine's life, including it as a grape, uh, what needs to happen. And so, um, full attention to detail for that. There's a very particular way of winemaking for that wine. If you want that style. And so, um, you know, you be the one to always make, as a winemaker, you're making the compromises. Don't let anyone else make them and stick to your guns. And, um, you know, if you want to see this out, because, you know, what you do and what you don't do will make a difference. And also like a path when it comes to winemaking, um, certain types of wines, say for instance, like high pH red wines. Um, and I, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> it means these wines don't really have a long seller life ahead of them. So if you is choose to make high pH wines and they're very interesting wines, these are, these are wines that are almost like a crew Beaujolais. They have that structure. Um, they can be fruit forward. Uh, they're not really super high intense color wines usually. Um, but there's a lot of, um, a lot of the, the way, uh, I guess the, the grapes are received in the way that, um, our wines kind of come out the gate. They, a lot of the times they can be high pH, especially if you're trying to treat, achieve a certain ripeness level. And so once you decide, you know, once you, um, have kind of committed to that style of winemaking, you have to realize that they, they, they go a different path than just traditional winemaking, textbook winemaking. Um, and so you just have to stick to your guns and you have to, you know, make sure you have a well thought out plan and you stick to it. If you try to deviate or you don't do what you say you're going to do, um, it can go awry pretty quick. And end up with so, a mess on your hands, something you have to fix. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and, and then also seek remember that this industry is um, an industry that requires mentoring. So if you don't have a mentor, if you're a winemaker, and you don't have so, including myself, I mean, if, even if you're 16 years experienced, I'm only six years experienced as a winemaker, but I went through all the ranks, and I've mentored under two fantastic ones. And then, um, you know, even on the tasting side, a part of those – uh, tastings that I did with Dr. Goolsby. I mean, he mentored me with that. So always have a mentor uh, or someone who's more experienced than you to help guide you through this journey. Because, um, I mean, this industry will find a way to humble you very quickly if you think you got it figured out. Um, so keep keep the uh, you know that spirit of of you know of learning from someone more experienced. Um, you know, continue in education as much as possible. Um, yeah, go find a mentor if you don't have one. <laughs> uh, I have a feeling that you'll forever be chasing that 82 Margot. I mean, really. <laughs> no, it's the, um, but, I call it the velvet brick. <laughs> uh, what do you think is the closest you've come in making something that's really beautiful and age-worthy? What are, what's one of your favorites over time? <clears throat> uh, we made a, in 2013, which is like coincidentally the, fir- like the worst vintage we had in, in the West Texas, it was, it was, it was a year, actually it was a year I went to New Zealand. Um, so I, I was finishing up their harvest in, in Marlboro. Um, 
and that was uh, April, yeah, the April of 2013, which was the time that our our vines were breaking bud in West Texas. And apparently, when I was gone, there was four spring frost, and it just like I mean, completely wiped out the crop, um, almost across the board in West Texas, a very low production year. Um, but the so I came back and I'm like. And they told me, hey, there's no, there's going to be no grapes this year. <laughs> so, and it really was. It was something like, uh, including, you know, Del Valley got uh, hit pretty hard. And they typically, because, because what makes that place a special wine growing place is that its, it's uh, winters are a little more milder than they are up here. It gets cold, but it doesn't get as cold as it gets on the Texas high plains. And so their vines are, um, there's also a little less herbicide drift going on around there. And so their vines are a little stronger and they can, um, you know, they've, uh, they're, um, just don't have the winter damage, the bud damage that can occur in, in the Texas high plains anyways, but it did get very cold down there and they did have a little bit of damage. So this is one of those rare events that happens almost statewide. And so, yeah, I come back and yeah, there's not that many grapes, you know, to produce that year. Uh, but what we did get is very concentrated. The grapes that did produce a crop, uh, usually it was all, it was second crop, maybe tertiary crop. Um, but second crop Montepulciano from the Reddy Vineyards was beautiful. I mean, it was like, um, it was very concentrated. It was the most, the highest concentration of, of just, um, color and tannins, all the right stuff to make a ageable wine. Uh, good chemistries at harvest. We had a long growing season. I mean, it, it did get delayed by about three weeks because of the frost. So it was going to be a later growing season anyways. Um, but during harvest, everything, you know, we didn't have any uh, weather events that would, um, you know, further compound the tough year we're already having. But those grapes um, were just beautiful. And we made a very beautiful wine um, that we aged. We did very traditional winemaking with it. So long-term aging in the cellar. And we released it for the, the winery's 40th anniversary in 2016. And we called it Rubino, which is Italian for ruby, which I guess the ruby is like the 40-year anniversary. I think okay. that's right. That's what it was called. <laughs> so that wine stands out to me. And I, I, we just had a bottle um, last month. It's one of those unicorn wines now. Like we didn't do a good job holding any back in our wine cellar. <laughs> We're getting better at that, by the way. Um, but we did have a few, there was actually two bottles that were shared, um, at actually my, my mentor, um, my boss, Greg Bruni, his retirement party. And it was, it was still, it was still drinking beautifully. I mean, it's still, um, probably like not even reaching its peak at this point, but it's super complex. Um, it still has a beautiful, really dark color intense. Um, it just like shows me that there is, you know, a lot of potential, uh, for Texas. And I would say the best wines haven't even been made yet. Um, we're not even there yet. Um, but you know, it's one of those eye opening, you know, the stunning wines that you're just like, wow, this is, you know, this is some, there's some cool stuff being made out there. Excellent. And, and um, you really like the Italian varieties. I do. I think, uh, Italian wines, I, I love what I love most about Italian wines in general is that they're food wines. And that's what I, that's what I always thought wine, you know, once you have that, once you just, I mean, just have wine with dinner and it just elevates the experience always. Um, and so that's the Italian philosophy. And so I, that's what I really like, um, about Italian wines. I don't say, I wouldn't say maybe not all of them are, are best suited for, for Texas viticulture and our climate, 
but a lot of them are. And um, our wines always taste better with food and vice versa, just like the Italians. So that's what I love the most, probably a philosophy thing than, than really just the Italian varietals themselves. But Mozzapulciano is, is an Alianico are very, they're hardy, they're thick skinned, they bud out late. They kind of work in a lot of different ways uh, for uh, West Texas viticulture. So, and they produce um, when made, whenever, when grown correctly and, and yields are protected, um, um, or they can produce something that's very um, eye-opening and, and delicious. And age-worthy, it sounds like. And well, age-worthy, We're, we're yeah. coming to the end of our time together. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you want people to know about Yano? Anything that may surprise them? Anything you've got going on that you want to bring up? I don't know. We, we have a, a pretty small crew of hard-working um, hard team that really makes it all happen. You know, I take a lot of credit for their hard work. And so, um, yeah, come out anytime, anybody listening, you ever want to come to, if you're, even if you're just passing through to Colorado to go skiing, <laughs> stop by the winery, ask for Jason. I'll introduce you to the team. Uh, we'll taste some wines that, you know, maybe we can blow your mind, uh, by tasting them. And, um, yeah, there is a little secret, of, you know, cash of wines called our wine club wines and our direct to consumer wines in the tasting room <laughs> that you, some you've probably never heard of. And, uh, we, we just might, uh, put a smile on your face with one of those. Thanks, Jason. And be sure to follow Yano Wine, that's L-L-A-N-O Wine on Instagram and Yano Estacado Winery on Facebook. This segment is sponsored by the Texas Wine Marketing Assistance Program. You know, Commissioner Sid Miller has said he's proud to be a sponsor of our podcast because we're telling the story of Texas wine, how the world needs to learn more about Texas wine, from the people growing the grapes to the people producing that quality Texas wine. Texans are committed to making Texas wine the best in the world. Go to uncorktexaswines.com to learn more. Now it's time for a Texas wine gold star. This gold star is for clever marketing. I recently saw a promotion for a wine box set that got my attention. The box was offered by Austin-based U.S. Natural Wine, and it's called the Texas Sucks Box. The tagline is, Texas sucks. Don't move here. Drink the wine, though. The Texas Sucks Box is a three-pack that includes unique small-batch wines made here in the Lone Star State. And some of those brands that might be included are Southhold Farm and Cellars, Austin Winery, Soto Vino, Elliott Family Wines, Ash Wines, and more. You may recognize several of those labels are part of the Austin Winery's collective program where their winemakers also create their own projects. So that's a gold star for catchy marketing. It's a new year, and one of my goals for the year is to expand the number of podcast listeners. You can help me do that by following and subscribing to this podcast, leaving a review. Stars are great, but your actual comments are even better. You can also engage in social media by tagging me in your posts and also sharing my posts. And finally, sending me feedback, comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes. You can do that at texaswinepod at gmail.com. Or you can leave me a voicemail at 802-585-1286. Thanks for helping this little podcast grow. 
And that's it for now. Thanks to all the new listeners who are discovering the podcast and making an effort to visit my website to buy me virtual Texas wine. Podcasts are always free to listen to, but they're not free to produce. And if you're inclined to support this podcast, you can do that by visiting This Is Texas Wine and clicking on the Support the Podcast tab. Thanks, y'all. And thanks to Texas Wine Lover website and Jeff Cope for helping promote the podcast. Visit TXWineLover.com to help you plan your next winery visit. Join me in two weeks for my next episode. And thanks for listening to This Is Texas Wine. Cheers, y'all.